0: is with the medical historian and journalist Mark Honigsbaum about his book The Pandemic Century, which charts how the world has been shaped by outbreaks of infectious diseases over the past hundred years, starting with the Spanish flu. The book was originally released in 2019, but Mark has recently updated it with a new chapter and an epilogue addressing the coronavirus pandemic. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, called him to find out more.
1: Mark, one of my main takeaways from reading the uh, updated edition of your book is that the world should have seen uh, COVID nineteen coming. I mean, would you say that's a fair assessment?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. So, so what I try to explain, well, first, of all, what I try to lay out in the the original uh, hardback edition of the Pandemic Century that came out in two thousand and nineteen, that. Uh, pandemics have always occurred in history. So it's erasing certainty that there would be new pandemics. But in particular, I tried to look at uh, the last century of pandemic outbreaks, beginning with the Spanish influenza in 1918, and following those outbreaks all the way through to Ebola in 2014 and Zika in 2016. And um, what was clear even then was that um, these events were becoming more frequent, uh, the nearer we approach, you know, the present day. And in addition, there were plenty of people warning, um, you know, that we had to prepare. Um, So what I did when, uh, after Covid struck, was I went back and took a closer look at some of the the groups such as, um, uh, well, Bill Gates was one of them, but also John Hopkins Centre for Health Security, uh, who ran a pandemic simulation exercise in New York in uh, October 2019, where they specifically modelled uh, an outbreak on a coronavirus. The only difference was in their simulation, the outbreak starts uh, on a farm in Brazil rather than in a city in China.
1: So, so why um, has COVID nineteen apparently taken the world by by surprise? I mean, can we put it down to complacency?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are a number of factors of which. Complacency, um, this this theme of hubris, which I explain, which I uh, explore in the book. Um, So there are lots of interlocking factors, but I think the main thing that this pandemic uh, illustrates is one of the main themes that uh, I try to get at in my book, and that is that um, scientific knowledge of infectious diseases, um, of course, has allowed us to control and in some cases uh, eradicate infectious disease. So it's been a great boon to humankind. Thanks to science, we have vaccines and antibiotics um, and all sorts of interventions that we know will control and be effective against certain diseases. But as much as we know, there's always a lot that is hidden from us and from science itself. Uh, And sometimes those things that, that are hidden can be because we only have partial, we don't have fully understand all the aspects of a specific disease that we may have seen before. Or in this case, it can be that we just don't know about something because it's completely unknown. Um, So um, before COVID struck the World Health Health Organization, who had kind of got their fingers burnt, uh, they'd been widely criticised when Ebola erupted in West Africa, that They didn't seem to think that Ebola could pose a threat to West Africa because all the previous Ebola epidemics have been in Central Africa in these remote forested regions. They then then made a collective effort to try and think out of the box. Um, And they came up with this new category, disease X, which would designate uh, a pathogen that was completely unknown to science, but was a theoretical possibility. And that's what... COVID is, or, or to give it its proper scientific name, SARS-CoV-2. Um, of course, it shares some genes in common with SARS-1, the coronavirus that sparked the outbreak in 2002-03. But there are so many genes that are different that it really is a new category, of coron- a new type of coronavirus. And therefore, it was a complete unknown. Um, and, you know, this is really uh, why I think we were caught so unaware. Um, there are other reasons, too, if you want me to go into them.
1: <laughs> well, before we get to that, I mean, you, you, you talk a lot in the final chapter of your book about the impact of our sort of the in- interconnected world, climate change, budget airlines and the soaring demand for animal protein. Um, to what extent has globalisation made us more vulnerable to infectious diseases like COVID-19?
2: Well, yes. I think it's made us um, many, many times more vulnerable. Um, so yeah, as you laid out, there, there are a series of interlocking factors, uh, which you could group under this, this concept of globalisation. So one of those is simply the way that um, global trade and travel, um, particularly all the airline networks and the increasing connections, uh, make the world a much smaller place from an epidemiological and also the point of view of immunology. So that means that a new virus emerging on the other side of the world in what in previous centuries would have been a remote habitat, can very rapidly be anywhere in the world within 72 hours. Um, So that's one thing. Uh, But I think the wider message of my book um, and why I think this coronavirus pandemic has been so important is it's really underlined the extent to which um, this is a problem now of planetary health. um, Because what's clear is that um, we know from veterinary ecology, from people who take take a close look at um, the wild animal habitats where these these viruses circulate continually, is that we're doing all sorts of things to make it more likely that they they will spill over to human settlements. One of those things is that we um, increasingly encroach on those habitats uh, for timber or for precious minerals, or indeed um, uh, people in southern China and also across Asia and parts of Africa rely on these what are known in quotes as exotic sources of animal protein uh, to sustain themselves. So it's quite common in China for people to go into caves in in southern China, where we believe a reservoir, a lot of these coronaviruses is. And um, sometimes it might be just farmers collecting feces from bats with which to fertilise their fields. Um, Some people in China still eat bats as they do in in parts of Africa, fruit bats. Um, but also, there's this other factor, which is um, because these are also the areas of the world where we're seeing very, very rapid industrialization and um, a transition from a, an agrarian society to a modern industrialized society. And what that means is you have people migrating from rural areas, towns, and villages to these mega cities. And to sustain those populations, capitalism requires huge, farming of huge amounts of animal protein. And we know that this industrial scale farming creates its own disease risk because um, a lot of these emerging viruses, the classic one example being avian influenza. Avian influenza is typically transited to human populations via these um, domestic poultry flocks, pigs and chickens that are being raised on industrial scales to feed these huge um Urban uh, workforces. Um, so, in recent uh, decades, um, there's there's been a lot of sort of um, examination of these risks, and there've been plenty of warnings that we need to do better to control them. But I think the big wake up call now is we have to really question: um, is this really a sustainable model? Um, not just for for the planet, but for our own security. Sure.
1: And you describe COVID-19 as China's uh, Chernobyl moment. I mean, how do you rate the Chinese response in the last weeks of 2019 and the early weeks of, uh, early weeks of 2020?
2: Well, I mean, I think that um, it wasn't great, <laughs> put it that way. Um, their initial response uh, was this knee-jerk response just to, to, to sort of deny that there was anything unusual going on and then to seek to silence um Uh, Chinese doctors, clinicians, uh, who realised very rapidly that this was a SARS-like virus. Um, So I think we did lose a critical period there, uh, probably about three weeks in the beginning of January. Um, On the plus side, though, the Chinese learnt a lot from the mistakes they made during SARS-1 in 2002, where uh, their reaction was to deny and obfuscate and cover up for much longer. Um, and the main thing they learned was that it was important to share information. So what we saw at the same time was um, scientists at Wuhan Institute of Technology, but also in Beijing, rapidly sequenced the new coronavirus and published that entire sequence online, made it available to the WHO and made it available to other scientists all around the world so that they could see that this was a new virus. Um, and I think it's at that point that we have to ask very hard questions of um, our own scientists in Britain and other countries who are modeling this virus and its epidemiology. And also the politicians who we really depend on to prepare for these, um, you know, once in a century, or well, not even once in a century, they're happening more often than that, but to prepare for these risks, which we know uh, can really pre- pre- present catastrophic situ- crises for our societies.
1: So how would you rate their response? I mean, is it too early to do that? Or do you think, you know we, we can pass judgment now?
2: Well, I, I think what's, I mean, one of the, the biggest ironies for me uh, as a historian of pandemics, uh, so one of the, the pandemics that I've spent more time than any other um, studying as a historian and trying to understand is the 1918 to 1919 Spanish influenza pandemic. Um, and what's clear is that um, the British government, but also um, the US, most government's pandemic plans were modelled on an influenza pandemic. Um, and in particular, 1918 as the worst case scenario of a truly catastrophic pandemic event. Um, so the problem was that we were modelling our response to COVID based on a very different pathogen. So both influenza and COVID are respiratory uh, diseases, but they don't spread in the same way. And it, the, the most important thing we, I don't think we fully realised was that, first of all, COVID has a much longer incubation time, uh, 14 days. Influenza is a very short incubation period, two to four days. Um, and also, we now know that there were a high number of asymptomatic infections. What that meant was that a lot of the way that COVID was spreading was invisible to science. Um, and, and also because of the assumption that it was it was kind of like influenza, um, once we thought COVID was in Europe or in the United Kingdom, I think the reaction was, oh, well, it's here, there's nothing we can do because based on the experience of influenza, once you actually know it's here, it's too late because it's got such a short incubation period it's always very, already very widespread. That wasn't the case with COVID. We now know that um, better testing and, you know, tracing and tracking of those infectious contacts could have closed down or or controlled the infection chains in a way that may have prevented us having to stop the whole economy for the sake of uh, avoiding a surge uh, on the NHS.
1: Mate, you're right that, Coronavirus research has been a victim of boom and bust funding and, uh, and scientists have been advised to steer clear of it um, in recent times. I just wonder if you could go into that a little bit, just explain why that's the case.
2: Well, yeah. So you only have to think about the the most well-known coronavirus, which is the common cold. So uh, if you go back to the early 70s, there, there was a lot of research on the common cold, particularly in this country where a big effort was made to see if we could develop a vaccine against it. That went on for a while, but um, uh, basically it was a failure. Uh, And uh, after that, um, we didn't actually discover a new coronavirus until SARS came along. Um, You know, so so coronaviruses were considered, uh, quotes, the Cinderella's of the virus world. Um, Something that, you know, it might be interesting to look at late at night but not something you should waste your waking hours on, uh, particularly if you're a scientist trying to build a research career. Um, And the main thing is there there wasn't funding for that research. Um, That changed a little bit when SARS emerged. And um, we realised that, you know, there was this new type of coronavirus uh, that did present uh, an epidemic threat and possibly a pandemic threat. Um, uh, and so what it, what happened was there was a brief surge in funding. But this pattern, w- we see this throughout uh, the recent run of epidemics, is what I call the cycle of panic and neglect. So there's always a big panic and a lot of interest when this new uh, pathogen is identified. And we're all trying to understand, you know, what it is, how how dangerous it is, and importantly, how to control it. But once the epidemic ends for whatever reasons, then that interest wanes or we switch our attention to the next immediate pressing uh, infectious disease threat. Um, and that's when the neglect sets in and you see the funding um, the, the funding available to researchers fall. Uh, so we really need to break that cycle. And there are organisations who've been trying to do that.
1: And um, you're also right that uh, Spanish Influenza... Spanish flu, made curious, curiously little impact on the collective consciousness of society. Now, given that it killed so many people, why do you think that was the case?
2: Well, first of all, at the time, uh, few people realised the, the degree to which um, it did kill a lot of people. Uh, and that's because we didn't have um, teams of disease modelers like Neil Ferguson in Imperial College or, or any of these other centres around the world, um, you know, Modeling the the this 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 mystical number the R naught, right? Uh, and you know newspapers weren't um, telling people every day you know which direction the R naught was moving. Um, at the height of the second wave of the pandemic, if you subscribe to the Times or another newspaper, you could see that the the names of the influenza dead in the obituary pages crowded out the names of the fallen of Flanders and other killing fields in northern France. Uh, but even after the pandemic was over, uh, it wasn't realised the scale of the, the world, the scale of the global mortal- mortality wasn't realised until many decades afterwards when um, epidemiology statisticians went back and recalculated these figures. Uh, but the, the other key reason was there were two really, so um, you could um you could be uh, in britain and your neighbor next door could be ill with influenza or have died a horrible death and you may not have realized because um there were not public you weren't being bombarded by public health messages and importantly the newspapers were not amplifying those messages and reporting it very widely so if you look through uh, back editions of the times or the daily mail as i've done you'll see that um The Spanish flu is already relegated to the inside pages and, you know, right down the bottom of the pages. That only changes at the height of the second wave in October to December of 1918. Uh, But then it disappears. Um, And then the other thing is that um, you have to realise that uh, Britain and other countries like America, France, Germany, were in the middle of a world war. Um, And I think one of the lessons, historical lessons of pandemics is that war always trumps infectious disease. It's a more immediate existential threat. What's more, you can visualise the enemy quite clearly and you can direct, you know, all your propaganda and moral messages of fear and the need to take this seriously. Um, Pathogens don't lend themselves to those metaphorical expressions in quite the same way.
1: But you'd argue that pandemics are just as inevitable as conflicts.
2: Well, I mean, uh, one of my favourite quotes is from uh, uh, Albert Camus uh, from his book, uh, 1947 book, The Plague, where he writes, Everyone knows that pestilences have a way of recurring in the world, yet somehow we find it hard to believe in ones that crash down on our heads from a blue sky. There have been as many plagues as wars in history, yet plagues and wars always take people by surprise. So yes, I mean, I don't think there's any reason to believe there won't be more wars and um, it's very likely there'll be more pandemics as well.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: The message that I really would like to give listeners to the podcast is that we need to think in global terms, but we have to act locally, okay? Not just in medicine and science, but in our politics. I really think that local communities... And empowering people with the, the scientific and medical expertise at a local level is the thing that is most likely to protect us in the future.
1: What can previous outbreaks such as the Spanish flu tell, sort of tell us about the, the, the likelihood of there being a, a second wave?
2: Well, I mean, this really comes down to um, you know immunology, uh, which is really the most difficult, uh, I think, of all the the life sciences to understand, uh, particularly for, you know, your general listeners, people who who haven't studied it, maybe. So so the key thing is that um, our models are always based on um, what we know about previous pandemics. And our best model for that are influenza pandemics. Um, So typically, the question is, at what point does the virus run out of new susceptibles, new people in the community who are still susceptible to infection and therefore can fall ill and transmit the virus to another susceptible individual. That depends on how many people have already had the illness and been immunised and therefore can be taken out of that model. Um, And it's generally thought, based uh, principally on influenza and diseases um, like measles, that you need to reach in excess of 60, 70% herd immunity. With measles, it's higher, it's it's up to 95% really. But the working model for COVID is that until at least two thirds of the population have been immunised, we're going to continue to see follow-on waves. Um, Now, we don't know if they'll be exactly like influenza because influenza seems to uh, go away during the summer months Not quite sure why, but it could be to do with that its um, ultraviolet light degrades the virus quite rapidly. But probably it's more to do with the fact that people spend more time outside in summer, and therefore we're not crowded together indoors, uh, which facilitate the transmission of respiratory viruses. Um, The difference with the coronavirus is absolutely no one anywhere has any immunity or didn't have any immunity before this epidemic started. That isn't true with influenza viruses. There's even with a new pandemic virus, there's always a percentage of the population that have some immunity because um, they will have previously been exposed to another pandemic virus that has continued to circulate up until this new one comes along. And frequently there are genes, proteins that your immune system will recognise that the new virus shares in common with the old virus.
1: And how hopeful are you at the prospect of us getting a a vaccine?
2: Well, um, I I really don't think we should be counting on a vaccine. Um, Yeah, uh, I mean... I think you know, we've heard lots of positive noises, but then when you actually read the small print of the studies, there seem to be all sorts of questions about um, the degree to which a particular vaccine candidate produces what they call neutralizing antibodies and can actually prevent um, the the pathogen being uh, you know transmitted. Um I think it's possible or you know, maybe likely we will get some kind of vaccine that maybe can reduce the severity of the disease. But I really think that the chance of a vaccine that actually prevents transmission um, is is quite a distant prospect at the moment. Um, That's only because we know it's very hard to induce immunity uh, with coronaviruses, but also because most vaccines take, you know, at least 18 months, if not five to 10 years to go from laboratory bench to... Um, you know, doctor surgery.
1: Okay, now um, there's been a number of uh, conspiracy theories swirling around the COVID-19 outbreak. But as you write in the book, this is nothing new. Um, can you give us some examples of uh, conspiracy conspiracy theories that arose off the back of previous pandemics?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, 1918, people thought that influenza was a biological uh, warfare device that had been released on America by German U-boats patrolling the Atlantic coast. Um, so, uh, you know, um, during uh, the cholera outbreaks in the 19th century um, in in Britain, but also in other countries, uh, the the poor thought that cholera was a ruse by the medical profession. Uh, that, the you know, the medical profession had deliberately poisoned uh, their drinking water simply because, uh, well, in the, in Britain, the rumour was that um, the medical profession had done this because they wanted to have uh, bodies to experiment on, that anatomists were looking for cadavers. Um, so uh, the medical profession were accused of burking after uh, Burke and Hare, the two uh, Scotsmen who Um, acquired murdered people, actually, and provided the bodies to the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. Um, So we always see variations on conspiracy theories um, in every pandemic. And I think that's really because pandemics bring home to us how uncertain scientific knowledge is, and how contingent uh, and chaotic, um, you know, life really is. So I think people hate uncertainty you know, they, they want to, to know there's a rhyme or reason why things happen. Um, and um, often we look to science for that. And when science can't provide the answers, we think they're part of the problem, part of the conspiracy. Um, so I think that's really the appeal of conspiracy theories. They're, they're kind of like, uh, they replace religion as, as, as kind of a way that populations can seek comfort in, in what they think of as, as their knowledge of the conspiracy. And I guess we also
1: like to uh, find and identify scapegoats as well uh, when things like this happen.
2: Yeah, so exactly. I mean, so uh, pandemics, uh, particularly where they seem to be associated with particular at-risk groups. So during cholera, it was the Irish who were accused of spreading cholera. Um, You know, during HIV-AIDS, it was was labelled the gay plague. Um, the American news anchors used to go on primetime news and talk about the gay plague and talk about um, particular well-known um, homosexuals who had lots and lots of partners and were accused of being super spreaders. Uh, and we saw very similar language here uh, from certain newspapers at the beginning of COVID. Um, so the, the danger when you start to label certain individuals as, you know, being more likely to spread something than anyone else, is that you then risk stigmatising that group and sing- singling them out for blame. You also describe
1: um, lesser-known outbreaks, which I personally hadn't, hadn't heard of, such as a great parrot fever and the, the, something called the Philly Killer. I just wonder whether you could just t- tell me a little bit more about those those two outbreaks.
2: Yeah, so... Um, uh, the, the the great parrot fever pandemic of 1929 to 1930 is, is really one of those forgotten pandemics. I mean, the Spanish flu is often called forgotten, but this really is uh, forgotten. There's been very little scholarship on it. Uh, but at the time, uh, it was, um, you know, a big event worldwide. It was picked up by all the tabloid newspapers. In particular, um, it was the William Hurst group uh, in the United States. William Hurst, you know, who was the model for... Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. Uh, So in 1929, um, Hearst newspapers picked up on this story about an Argentine theatrical troupe in Buenos Aires, uh, where one of the actors had brought a pet parrot onto the stage. Uh, It was an operetta. Um, They had like a sort of, uh, you know, uh, a seafaring captain type with a parrot. Uh, And what happened was, um, after this performance... Uh, the lead actor and his leading lady and several members of the cast fell ill with uh, parrot fever and died. Um, Very soon after that, uh, cases cropped up in Baltimore uh, and other cities on the East Coast. And then we started to see cases in Germany, in London. And pretty soon there were cases in something like uh, 12 countries worldwide. Um, And it was labelled parrot fever, but um, the pathogen could also be spread by pet parakeets, and and other birds that were typically um, given by um, husbands to their wives, or typically a fiance would give it it to his lover. And they were seen as tokens of affection, but also in an era before people had TV or even FM radio, you know, um, a pet parakeet or parrot, was seen as a way of keeping company for lonely widows or housewives during the day. What we what people didn't know or realise at the time was that these parrots, these parakeets, also harboured a bacteria, a form of chlamydia called chlamydia cytokine, which produced this disease called cytokosis. And what happened is if you inhaled the dried, desiccated droppings, um, those uh, particles could become lodged in the lungs and produce a very severe form of atypical pneumonia. And as with COVID, very people died very, very rapidly. And the typical um, the the typical victims were elderly ladies, uh, type of people who may have gathered round their pet parakeet for a cup of coffee and afterwards, you know, didn't realize they were inhaling all these particles. Um, so it really is quite interesting. I suppose one of the reasons I included it was was also that, you know, this was a pandemic because um even though I think fewer than a thousand people died worldwide. It was a new disease. It was uh, in more than one country simultaneously, and people had no protection against it. So whenever we see the basic definition of pandemic is simply a worldwide outbreak of a new disease, Um, people think that pandemics have to cause massive disruption, as we're seeing now with COVID, in order to be pandemics. But that's not the actual definition
1: Right, Mark, you also write in the book that in the future, historians may well refer to a pre-corona and a post-corona age. I mean, do you really think that what we're going through at the moment is that seismic?
2: Yeah, so I mean, this was actually this term before Corona BC and AC after Corona was um, coined. this, This term was coined by columnists in The New York Times quite early on. But yes, and I do think that this is a watershed moment in a way that perhaps other pandemics haven't been. Uh, and that's because it's because, precisely because, we come back to what we said at the beginning, because the world is so globalised and interconnected now, and we have these long supply chains. Um, so what's that meant? We can all see this, is that in order to control this outbreak, we've had to stop the economy, and not just our economy, but the global economy. And because of that, um, we're already seeing huge disruption to social life. But more importantly, um, we know there's going to be massive economic hit um, in all likelihood, um, a depression that compares with the Great Depression of 1930. So for those reasons alone, uh, I don't think there's any possibility that we'll forget this rapidly and be able to move on because we're going to be dealing with the repercussions for some time. But more importantly, um, it's also a wake-up call that we, we can't ignore um, the, all the different factors we've been talking about that cause these events to occur and reoccur and, and will uh, make them more likely to occur in the future. So, um, you know, if you think about what was going on before COVID, um, you know, the crisis we were all being told we faced was climate change. But because it was, seemed so remote from our daily lives, it was like we were paralysed. We were unable to actually address it politically, even though the science was there and there was no doubt it was happening, and we could see it happening. Um, I mean, COVID is something we haven't been able to ignore because it's it's here right now, and we can see it poses an existential threat. Um, So my hope is that um, there will be this window where we can use um, the fact that uh, climate change is one of the factors that makes um, these pandemics more likely to also make us address the bigger threat of climate change, uh, which, you know, really could spell, in theory, the extinction of our species.
1: And My, my final question is, um, do we have to accept that um, we're unable to predict when the next pandemic will be? Um, or is, 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 will it ever, you think, be possible to, to see one come in and then prepare for it?
2: Well, I... Um, Look, I think to a certain extent, we can already see these things. So, um, you know, in in the new edition of the pandemic century, um, I spend a lot of time talking to veterinary ecologists, people like Peter Daszak, who um, works for the EcoHealth Alliance, an NGO based in New York, who have specialised in going to China, but also other um, emerging disease hotspots across Southeast Asia, and trying to see what's going on in these wild animal reservoirs. So they've been they go into caves where we know um, bats that harbor coronaviruses reside. And they've been taking uh, blood from bats and examining uh, fecal samples, looking, actively looking for the next coronavirus. Uh, and in the last five years, they've identified something like five hundred coronaviruses, fifty of which uh, have SARS-like qualities. So could theoretically be triggers for another pandemic. Um, so we already know um, what some of these future uh, virus and pandemic potential look like. What we don't know, and I think something is very difficult, and I, don't, I think which makes, to answer your question directly, I think that really trying to predict when or where the next one will emerge is a false game Uh, because there are so many different permutations and we know that these spillover events are occurring all the time um, in China and Southeast Asia. Uh, But it only takes one of these events to find the right person in the right network, if you like, to spread it more widely. Um, So what we really need to do is is invest in better um, healthcare systems so that we can spot it quickly and we can close it down rapidly. And what that requires is much more investment all over the world in diagnostic tests, laboratories, near to the areas where these things occur. So the message that I really would like to give listeners to the podcast is that we need to think in global terms, but we have to act locally, okay? Not just in medicine and science, but in our politics. I really think that local communities... And empowering people with the the scientific and medical expertise at a local level is the thing that is most likely to protect us in the future.
0: That was Mark Honigsbaum. His book, The Pandemic Century: A History of Global Contagion from Spanish Flu to COVID nineteen, is on sale now, published by W. H. Allen. If you are interested in this discussion, you can hear more conversations about Spanish flu and a historical perspective on coronavirus in our podcast archive. Just head to historyextra.com forward slash podcast to search for those. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday when Keith Lowe will be talking about war monuments.